welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the belligerents and neutrals. We'll think about political power and order amongst nation states and other group persons. Is an international order or any other power order inevitable? What are the sources of power? What creates space for dialogue? Are wars a result of conflicts of interests? Is might right? Have humans evolutionarily selected aggressive behavior? When does neutrality work? What is the best security against war? Do modern wars have epistemic roots? Is belligerence shown via military force alone? And what is the long-term future of war and peace? and standing armies we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today rajni bakshi she is a journalist and an author and lives in mumbai professor shubhashish chatterjee he teaches international relations and political science at jadavpur university in kolkata and uh, retired air vice marshal dr arjun subramanyam He is an ex-fighter pilot and a military historian. He is also currently a visiting professor at Ashoka University in Delhi. So, Shubhashish, why don't we set the ball rolling with you, uh, with maybe a zoom-out view of the world, um, whatever you, whatever goes through your mind when you think of international relations and international order. Um, is power hierarchy inevitable does it has it always been the case would it always be the case so why isn't it flatter why isn't it sharper how does one think of that how does one intermingle um all these various nation states and how do you infuse power into that why does that end up uh, entering the equation somehow inevitably okay i mean so uh, there are a lot of questions in fact you know into sure into one broad theme if i may say so first thing that i possibly draw attention to the fact is that the history of mankind is much longer the history of nation state in fact is relatively brief like 150 200 years 150 200 years so if you take the westphalia kind of a landmark there right uh, but it's a contested landmark i mean you know because history itself is is complex you know because the state process actually sort of took place between two treaties the osberg on one hand and westphalia on the other with purposes that were not necessarily recognized by international relations scholars let's say you know i mean for purposes which in fact were more theological mm-hmm. uh, than uh, either secular or related to state practices but the fact is that whether you live in nation states or not so you you're you're linking that to events like reformation and so on or Or no, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm just mean? trying to stress here the genealogy, mm-hmm. okay, of how we came to live in nation states, and whether that experience, in fact, had fundamentally altered our many of our senses in, you know, of things which we are discussing today. Okay, I mean, how we relate to each other, what is the role of military force in life, what is the role of violence in the larger context? Let's say so. All these questions, in fact, in some way or the other, they hinge. critically on what i would call the norms of political organization in life sure so my first point in fact is this that look 
maybe nation state, in fact, is not a very old political organization. Mm-hmm. But human beings have always lived in groups, okay? And so we've always lived in some, uh, I would say, political organization. And so no, it could be a tribe, it could be a kingdom, it, it could, could be, be a kingdom at some tribe. level, even a family. Yes, I mean, a kinship at least, okay? Kin- I kinship, mean, yeah. uh, or you could sort of think of empires. Much of our recorded history, in fact, is history of empires, let's say, okay? But then the fact is that there is this group dynamism in life, okay? And when you have a group dynamism in life, I'm not making a normative statement, so don't get me wrong here. Maybe you are, but... Uh, well, it, it, it's up to you to sort of read sure. it in some way <laughs> or the other. But the history of the group dynamics, in fact, is, is, is such that human beings, in fact, had to generate a lot of empathy and, uh, I would say, sentimentality and affect within the group. There has to be and some binding agent. Some binding. And for that, had had to always distance with the others. Okay, I mean, so... The history of the affect and the history of the distance, in fact, they always run together. Okay, And I'm not necessarily making the argument that everything is good within the community and they hold together and everything is volatile outside the community, let's say. That's not the ideal ideal picture. But the fact remains... But there's a mode of grouping. It's a, it's a mode. It's a mode. So, in, in other words, in-group solidarity and out-group hostility, in fact, had been almost a kind of, let's say... Uh, built into the nature of human civilization for a very long period of time. Now, what in fact had happened with the birth of the nation state, you know, in fact is this, and I'm obviously jumping a lot of human history here. Sure. We don't have the time to get into that. Sure. What has happened with the making of the nation state, in fact, is, is, is the fact that we have created institutions where there is an inbuilt potential for violence. And this is how I, I sort of look at it. So, so where do armies enter the picture? Where does military enter the picture? Arjun, you have a view on that? Yeah, very interesting because I'd like to take off. From because there's a, there's, there's a big jump between yeah. in-group, out-group and having armies, you know. Two, two quick points I want to make about the nation sure. state. Uh, you know, I think uh, I'd like to offer a contrarian perspective on how important... Uh, timelines are for our uh, established recognition of the nation state as as a grouping. And I think uh, the reason for that is because uh, the entities that created this Westphalian state have been able to sort of articulate this over the last couple of centuries and it's emerged as the template for a nation state. So you mean it's a narrative, it's not the... It's an, yeah. It's a narrative. It, it, it is a very powerful narrative. Mm-hmm. And that actually sort of subsumes some of the earlier attempts across millennia, wherein uh, empires, statesmen, groups of people have attempted to infuse structure into life or structure into a state or kingdoms within kingdoms. Uh, Now, as far as this issue of violence is concerned, I think I couldn't agree more that the evolution of the nation state in its current form has actually legitimized the structured use of violence as an instrument of statecraft. Right. So, yeah, and, 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 and that's how large standing armies, there were huge standing armies earlier too. But then very rarely did you link uh, the way in which structured armies went about their tasking with political objectives. And the fusion of political objectives and the structured uh, employment of violence in furtherance of those objectives is the Clausewitzian 
model and and yes uh, so so very much there is a linkage are there exceptions the to this because we kind of mentioned this almost as a rule uh, that any kind of order is political order right in in, in a sense there is this power dynamics somebody is stronger somebody is weaker uh, however it might be articulated are there exceptions to this or is power i mean how does one respond to this question of whether whether power structures are inevitable at least when one thinks of it in in the context of international order we'll go to rajni and think about it more generally in other kinds you know, of you know i i think entities. power stru- structures are also very heavily influenced by geography mm-hmm. you know the more the more you appear towards the center Mm-hmm. I mean, say Mackinder's heartland, or uh, uh, the European heartland, or the heartland of of Asia, you find that the propensity to use violence as an instrument of statecraft increases. So those are more contested territories. Yes, and as you go, as you move to the periphery, except for you know uh, instances in history like in Japan, but otherwise you have you know uh, places that are relatively isolated wherein i think humans have managed to evolve uh, structures that are contrarian or that are a little different from what we are normally used to i mean they have societies but they're not necessarily political entities yes. in that you know, such sharp for, ways for example i can think of uh, uh, i can think of parts of scandinavia Uh, so certain uh, you know certain portions certain island territories certain maritime spaces in hilly are, area that is caught another yeah, would say yeah. yeah and what is the genesis of all this rajni how does one think about that you know of course it's one thing to start at the level of nation state or an empire which are large agglomerations of all sorts of things and i think shibashish has been quite right in pointing out that it's not like everything is highly consistent inside uh, maybe it is maybe it is not how does one link that to a human being to human emotions to human nature to how you know interpersonal dynamics work uh, is there something fundamental about it do you bring human nature into thinking about these questions yeah in fact we can't discuss it at all without first looking at that and there there is a very clear divide uh, which as far as i know is a creation of modernity mm-hmm. which remember is a west european project mm-hmm. which and by mean, modernity you mean by well one key element of that is the uh, taking as a gospel the hobbesian claim that life in its raw form is short nasty and brutish yeah war okay. of one against all that's yeah. right yeah. so this claim has been contested most prominently by people who are known as anarchists philosophers uh, notably peter kropotkin mm-hmm. and uh, gandhi this is where gandhi comes in gandhi says that this is it's it's a it's a lie and his argument is that history by definition at least as west and that's why we have no history in asia we have mythic <laughs> consciousness no and there's a reason for that i believe i mean i think i can't claim that our ancestors knew i can't make that claim but uh, there's definitely advantages to mythic consciousness over history as a linear record of events because gandhi's claim is that because it recorded and and and, and what is mythic consciousness it is we'll come back to that but let hmm. me just complete that sentence that what he's saying is that yes all of history looks like it's filled with war because that's the only thing history is interested in because that's the only thing historians that... don't write about the times the big long periods of time between wars and nobody's interested in when all was quiet and there was fishing and farming and living on both sides of the river so having said that Um, so there is this uh, 
there's this historiography problem because depending on what gets recorded yeah but uh, that is not to say that is history yeah that is not to say that there isn't violence in our very distant past so the important thing to cut a long story short is that in the time of gandhi in the early 20th century there was a very dominant idea that the human being is fundamentally violent but that by default we are a violent creature and therefore war is inevitable and therefore people laughed at something like the league of nations remember the kind of cynicism while it was being done people were laughing on the side in corridors of power that how can you abolish war that's absurd well since so then the league of nations is uh, after the first world war or that's thereabouts right, right? That's right. so but it uh, kind of did fail because we soon after true. landed up on the that second world true. war that is true that is true but i'm i'm saying we are let's avoid for the moment the historical discussion on why that particular venture failed sure. and not judge the larger philosophical question based on uh, the fate of league of nations my all i want to share at this stage is that in the last 70 80 years there is a vast amount of multidisciplinary research extending from archaeology anthropology Uh, psychology and of course now the the kinds of neurological studies that we are able to do which tell us which parts of the brain light up in which kinds of moments in which kind of stimulus affect which parts of the brain which have pretty much conclusively proven that we are as attuned or as much hardwired to be violent as to be nonviolent both are learned behavior basically that is the point that since they are both learned behavior both can be taught then we now have to really pursue the questions that have been raised by my two colleagues that what is it about our times that is pushing and has made like has written into the dna of institutions the tendency towards violence how much of a role does context and environment and those sorts of things play because we are trying to essentialize either violence or non-violence or a peak seeking peace seeking tendency to whatever a more warning kind of tendency but surely there's an individual or an entity and then there's an environment and a lot of these things happen as a result of that interaction right so it does so it uh, might help to look at somebody very close to home vinoba bhave had a view on this he mm-hmm. used to say that the human being is appears in a spectrum let's say think of it as ultra violet to infrared So at one end are the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, uh, the Jack the Rippers, etc., and at the other end are the Christ, Buddha, Gandhi, uh, Dalai Lama, and he his point was that the bulk of peoples are somewhere in between, and they will sway either way depending on the circumstances that are created, and huh. to hmm. me that is uh, one explanation for why. the nation which was the most sophisticated and in a formal sense educated germany in the early 30s could be turned into what it became what what does the theorist in you say ashishish to this to this tendency nature question i know you're not a psychologist or a sociologist one gets that part but surely you must have thought about it in some shape and form several times um, is, is there a dotted line link that you make at all between humans and all these other Uh, and empires and nation states and so on what because these are scaled up versions of something aren't they um, maybe that itself is a wrong assumption so i'll let you correct me on that if needed i, I think there are two issues i think you know uh, intertwined here one is that what is the unit of analysis that you're looking at i mean if you're looking at an individual mm-hmm. 
There is, I think, enough, uh, I would say, research across disciplines, in fact, that reinforces what, you know, what Rajini, in fact, has just said, you know, which is that there is neither a pure propensity to violence in men nor a pure propensity to peace, okay? So if you wish to sort of, in a way, configure it genetically, the problem, in fact, with the genetic, you know, approach, in fact, is that, you know, you can't isolate human beings. So even if you brought a human being <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lab, yeah. you see, the social remains in him. So we are products of various kinds of interactions. You okay? cannot I mean, make it entirely biology. You yeah. can't, yeah. you know, you just simply can't, you know, because we are products of uh, various kinds of socialization, let's say, you know, and selective picking. I mean, so what you pick in life to large extent sort of depends on what kind of environment you inhabit, okay? I mean, so what gets uh, done around you? Right. What are the values, in fact, you know, which are taught to you as very, very important, let's say, okay? I'm not saying that you are necessarily a slave to that. That would be very high determinism, okay? So you have an environment, you put anybody, and the result is the same. Yeah. So life is part structure, part agency, okay? I mean, so yeah. if you say that it's only agency, then you are not looking at the the broader picture, the bigger picture, let's And say. would some of these notions, let's not call them universal laws, do they, do they carry into, if the unit of analysis was nation states as well? Yeah, yeah. You see, I think one of the things, you know, I would just go back to the nation state, you know, in the sense, for no other reason, uh, but the fact is that, look, uh, I completely agree with you know, Arjun, you know, which is that in the past, what was different, in fact, was that there was this great amount of experimentation with regard to political forms. Hmm. Now, that is gone in our life, okay? So every inch of the world, in fact, has become a nation state. Yeah, the it's... ice caps are part. I mean, and even in the ice caps, there are national competitions of various kinds yeah. now, okay? I mean, so, like, for example, if the glaciers melt because of the climate change, there's a huge amount of work of in critical geopolitics, which is trying to map that how that is going to change the conventional way in which strategy is understood. Okay, so will it be a return of the great game in some new form? Hmm. Okay, if the channels of communication comes, you know, sort of changes because of the melting of the of the icebergs. But I had something else to say to you, which is that this is a point which we need to, I, I think, at least touch upon in a discussion like this, which is this, that look, the nation state is a trinity, I tell you very broadly. First, every nation state, in fact, is territorial. Now, the problem with territory is that you don't have an ethical justification of the territory that you hold. <laughs> it's almost a kind of an accident, okay? I mean, yeah. so something, in fact, you know, is given There's to always you. something at least somewhat <laughs> arbitrary about it. Yeah, you acquire, yeah. but there is, you know, there what is neither any historicity to the acquisition, nor is any normativity, even in the performative sense to it, okay? I mean, so why is it that it belongs to me? So nobody asks this question. But is, isn't, there, isn't there a cartographic, uh, you know, isn't there a cartographic normals or normative uh, template for the creation of the nation state? Yeah. Well, even Australia has to become Australia. I mean, even though it's uh, totally secluded. Yeah, I mean, the, I would say the cartographic, uh, if you say it's a template kind of a thing, let's say, is broadly the idea that you have to become a nation state, okay? Which means that you can't really be a state without borders, let's say, yeah. okay? I mean, so you'll have to have... And even some lines sense are drawn configure. after yeah. all. So, yeah. But the Trinity, so the other two things are also equally important, you know, which is sovereignty. And sovereignty brings into being the absolutely cardinal difference between the inside and the outside. Domestic the which, affairs, foreign affairs. Absolutely. And right. the way in which these spheres are organized in life, okay? I mean, so the logic of organization matters. So if you are 
within the state. Obviously, it's going to vary where sure. you are. If you are in Somalia or in Syria right now, I mean, what yeah, international relations or any other discipline would tell you possibly would not really hold. Right. But the, the general understanding is that, look, you have to understand how power is organized, the mode of organization of power. So within the state, sovereignty is hierarchical. Okay, I mean, so if something goes wrong, there is authority, let's say. Okay, I mean, whether authority helps or authority hinders, that's a separate issue. But you can go to authority and claim your security, let's say, vis-a-vis -vis authority. That is the Hobbesian solution, by the way. Mm. So Hobbes mm. broadly sort of says that, look, it, if you have complete freedom, then you don't have any security or freedom at all. So, you know, in a way, what you do is that you make a custodian who's going to take your freedom and give you security in return. Yeah. So by and large, we are in that bind. Okay. Yeah, so, which is that pact. That was... pact. Okay, so we've not really come out of it. But in the external, it's decentralized. So there is no one zero zero to call at the international, let's say, okay. So, so therefore, who takes responsibility of your security? You do. So you have to take responsibility of your security. And once this sense gets into your system that there is no institution which is higher up, you know, which is going to take the care which, which is going to take care of my security. I think it's a small step, in fact, you know, towards the imagination of an international order, which is fundamentally based on power and uh, the artifacts of power. And the third thing which I wanted to say is we should not discount in the understanding of the modern state nationalism and the making of the nation. State and nation are different things, as we know. I mean, state isn't basically it's an administrative body, okay, of, of rule. Nation is largely a psychosocial construct, okay? I mean, so, and you can never define a nation, I'll tell you. If you try to define... I think the and, question yeah, is whether the... the, the, the you know, you, you, you see so many shades of nationalism over the last uh, couple of decades. Absolutely. And, you know, taking forward from, uh, you know, what Rajni mentioned about uh, not being able to stereotype human beings as being essentially uh, orientated towards violence. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I agree with that for the pure and simple reason... Uh, that if you look at two ends of the spectrum, uh, what determines uh, the general nature of, of, of activity, of human activity, depends on the grey zone in between the propensity for violence and those who, who abhor violence. You know, let me try and uh, narrate that through the, through the lens of, of a soldier. You know, when you had the era of structured war fighting, when nation states differed with, with one another over issues, there was a structured way in which societies moved from peace towards war. There were protracted periods. There were steps towards Steps. Yeah. And that step... Diplomacy and so you, on. You know, you know, in the sense, um, negotiation, diplomacy, some amount of structure, deterrence, right. elementary coercion. Treaties, pacts. And then, you know, when, when everything, when nothing worked, it was war. But today what has so happened is... you would put is, them on the same spectrum in a way. Yes, you know, it, it, the, the, strict, the spectrum was fairly stretched. And that stretched spectrum meant that you had large interludes of peace between uh, periods of war. Whereas now... Because war must be expensive, even yeah, for the aggressor. Today, wars... Today what's happened is, uh, you know, the grey zone has expanded so much that there are slivers of violence embedded into even periods of peace. Yeah. And that is why you talk about concepts of no war and no peace. <laughs> you know, mm. you uh, that's where you find non-state actors 
playing increasingly important role, uh, an, an increasingly important role in calibrating violence in societies. So, you know, the changing character of war also has played a very, very important role on, uh, you know, the amount of violence in society today. Arjun, how much of this is to do with technology and how much of it has to do with the way that po political mind of different levels of uh, global community has changed? Yeah, then, then we, we come to human, we come to the human element. We need to ask that if as societies we've become less tolerant, okay, we've become less, uh, uh, you know, we've been, uh, we've, we, we, we don't accept dissent. Obviously, the, the, the 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 envelope between uh, you know between peace and war keeps shrinking. I think the question is whether in a somewhat rigorous analysis of questions like these, can one link uh, these day-to-day -day kind of manifestations of tolerance and so on to uh, international order, and whether they are manifestation of similar kinds of tendencies? No, it, it, I think it, it again the, boils down to power. I think that's the question. Is your point, Rajni, the point you made a little while ago? Is your point that there is delinking between the cause and the effect the aggressor can act without harming oneself so when you say technology what what exactly do you mean it's the well, ease of inflicting damage yeah. that somehow increases the propensity and the tendency for those that events to one, increase and that the combination of technological revolutions not just in armaments but in communications for the first time in human history has made war a form of entertainment I remember when the, see, the Gulf War of, what is it, 91? 1991. Was the first live televised. televised. The cameras went in with the soldiers and almost like they were, you know, showing you the missiles Scud as they were happening. And, cruise, and I remember yeah. several people saying, wow, that's the best war movie I ever saw. Right. And so the, the unreality, by the way, began with the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Because it was not being covered live, but it was the first time which psychologists and anthropologists and political scientists started studying what is happening to people's mind when in the same stretch of three minutes, they've first seen a Kellogg's conflict ad, then they've seen a napalm bombing scene in Vietnam, and the next minute somebody is showing them uh, an ad for why to come to McDonald's. What does this do to your so brain? There's something and also a coffin coming back, uh, uh, a coffin coming back to the United States and a whole town gathering for the for, for the funeral. So it's... Um, so it's that combination of uh, the uh, disruptions in our psyche created by technology that I was you know, the, the, identifying the, as one reason why this yeah, process absolutely. has unfolded. The, the, ability, the ability to inflict damage and pain without, with the possibility of Getting no retaliation, yeah, yeah, without the possibility of no retaliatory action is something which is, a, which, which gives, uh, which can give a high and say that, wow, I can sit in Creech Air Force Base and uh, sort of uh, let off uh, a precision-guided munition that that knocks off my enemies uh, without uh, you know without ensuring uh, uh, harm to the heartland or something like that. So there is a seductiveness of modern technology also, that has increased kind of abstraction. Yeah, of, that has increased uh, the propensity of humans to to sort of inflict violence on others. And at the same time, the same tendency has also evoked the. Longing for peace in a more intense way than ever before. 
So I don't remember hearing any stories about peace teams that went and stood between Nazi Germany and France or Nazi Germany and Russia. But it happened in the Gulf War. There was actually a Gulf peace team of, I think it was several hundred people from nations across the world who actually went and physically stood. Of course, they were swept aside and the war proceeded. But the fact of that team can't be ignored. You know, let me just give you an example here. Uh, back home, uh, we've lost so many uh, men in Siachen or in the glacier. But this template we, we've seen in being enacted in India. We've had a lot of soldiers, we've had a lot of people who've actually been deployed on the glacier, who over a period of time after they've retired, have actually sort of propagated uh, the cause of Siachen being demilitarized. And I think we see the first step wherein even now we realize that it's a that that it's a pointless exercise in violence, and they, we are just opening up the Siachen glacier to to tourism. Right. So so there is some hope in this entire uh, violent spectrum that we see. I will say a few things. You know, one is that look, most recorded human history is a history of peace. Mm. Otherwise, we would not have survived. Even recorded, exactly. yeah, we would be here. Seven okay. billion of us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, even if you look at the statistics, let's say in the last fifty years. And the, this is a database, okay, which which is used almost universally by scholars. Now the database clearly shows, and this is a hundred years of database now, okay, of uh, war statistics that that exists. If you look at the database for the last thirty to fifty years, if I stretch, not not well, fifty years, not thirty years, what you find there is remarkable, you know, which is that what is the percentage of two states fighting? Very little, very little. Most of the violence is domestic violence, mm. civil, you know, what you call violence. Where does that civil violence come from? Okay, I mean, so, in a way, what I'm trying to get at, in fact, is this, that we need to ask these bigger questions as well. You know, I mean, the talk of technology is ultimately related to the larger, I would say, forces of modernity. Okay, I mean, so the link between modernity on one hand and violence on the other is something that we need, that we need to... I mean, sort of understand. And the point that I wish to make is this, that the modern forms of institutions inflict modern forms of violence. <laughs> okay, I mean, so that is right. a distinction that one needs to draw. Okay, I mean, like institutions, like, for example, and it is here that the work of post-structuralists, in fact, you know, have, I think, completely, in a way, shaken the way in which we understand things. Who do you have in mind? Well, uh, Foucault. Hmm. Uh, Broadly, what Foucault says is that Foucault wrote very little on war, frankly speaking. Okay, I mean, although Foucault had written on international affairs broadly in terms of commentaries and all, yeah. but his work, the, the most interesting part of the work, in fact, is his reflections on institution. Mm. You know, when he writes Discipline and Punish, mm. he's basically writing on what? He's writing on criminality as a form of violence. What's norm and what's not norm? What's, in a way. what's norm? Because, yeah. And what's not norm? And what is the relationship rather between norm on one hand and action on the other? So the argument which basically sort of broadly comes out is this, that in every sphere, you create a set of expertise. And that expertise becomes the adjudicator. Okay, I mean, so the psychologist comes into the courtroom. And you don't target crime any longer you pathologize the criminal. Hmm. So that's the argument, you know, which to my mind is a, is a very completely different way of looking at it. So if we have to understand why modern war, in fact, is what it is, modern forms of violence, in fact, is what it is, we need to understand the way in which institutions work in modern life, okay? And these institutions, in fact, they do two things at one. 
and that is the reason why so much of violence in fact is actually in the potential so the talk of violence in fact is not necessarily a violence which is in action okay but the violence in fact is like it's a shadow of violence okay I mean, so are we able to operate without the shadow of the violence mm. so what the modern institutions do two things at one one is that it individuates you work on your body so it disciplines your body let's say but on the other hand it also transforms you into a demographic hmm? yeah in a way dissolves you into a kind of a group so the whole notion of the way in which we understand things the subject the object all these ideas in fact you know in the light of modernity in fact needs to be questioned you know pay attention to the word subject even the english meaning of the term the conventional meaning of the subject is that the person who in fact is in control so is I, being studied yeah i mean subject i am the subject so i control the object yeah but the other meaning of the word subject is subjection yeah so i'm able to control provided i become something however so is there room for force is there is the other contexts where coercion or force or aggression call it what you like belligerence is effective because i mean taking the more realistic uh, yeah. the, the realist approach to things yes can Rashmi? i just add yeah. something here before sure. we proceed with your question sure that uh, ashish nandi has been studying violence in the 20th century mm-hmm. and his finding very much uh, confirms it, it it what you just said mm-hmm. which is that uh, an estimated 100 million people were killed by died by unnatural means very small portion of this is war the right. bulk of these killings have happened at the hands of the state a lot of them are connected with just the demand for obedience so these are mostly totalitarian regimes and things that, of that sort and man made famines right that have been created in part of some larger game for example the bengal famine which is completely man made sure in order to serve the interests of then the you know the then interests of the british empire and the chinese also large volume of people died in the either deliberate or accidental mismanagement of their food system but it is man made uh, so this issue of what is the and so that's why your point about subject is very important that the irony is that at a time when we celebrate the rise of democracy actually the demand for obedience from and the then the the term subject being substituted for citizen i mean it's sometimes that you know the subject and citizen are like interchangeable terms but that creates a whole range of problems because the implication of being a citizen in a democracy with a sense of agency is very different from what it meant to be a subject in a empire yeah you know the way I, the way i look at it we we are talking also about this this uh, a redefinition or we are, we are struggling with our understanding of democracy also today now i think that's not a very uh, 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 that's not a very uh, unusual thing uh-huh. we've always struggled with uh, you know we we get into our comfort zone and then when that comfort zone gets uh, 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 sort of disrupted then we struggle to find meaning in what we've been used to for so long so you know today uh, we we have multiple disruptors 
You see, we have we have nationalism, which is once again emerging as a disruptor. We have ethnic fault lines that are emerging as disruptors. We have, uh, you know, cultural issues that are again uh, re-emerging within nation states that are acting as disruptors. We are having a power struggle uh, at the uh, at the global level, which which is which is forcing uh, a, a sole superpower to sort of jostle with an emerging power for uh, a share of the global pie. And in that, you have you know a rising power like India. You have many other sets of rising powers across the globe, which are actually challenging status quo to some extent. So I think we are going through tumultuous times as far as understanding concepts such as or, or, or redefining concepts of violence, democracy. What do we understand by peace? What are the drivers of peace? The same drivers of violence and war 50 years ago, we don't have the same drivers. Uh, we don't have the same drivers today. I mean, do you think of these as uh, some of these forces as being multiple claims on sovereignty itself? Uh, I mean, on so nation state, for example, is, is one way in which the world is organized. Let's say that's where the the political you know more global. than the nation state i would go with the uh, uh, you know i would go with an increasing uh, uh, i would say an obsessive uh, uh, pursuit of the accumulation of power mm-hmm. i think then the question is whether i think power is so diffuse today in the globe nation states are the best way to accumulate power or there are other modes uh, other other ways in which so I, I don't know what you mean when you say that more than nation states, there has to be other ways of... No, I think Rajni wants to come in. No, here. I think we are leaving out the the big elephant in the room is the market. Hmm. The yeah, biggest form of concentration of power today is the concentration of capital. And, and that how that is overtaking and subverting every single technological innovation that showed promise of democratizing... Uh, the arrangements of life and material, you know, economy, etc., has been subverted. The decline of globalization. I mean, see, globalization sort of, if you look at globalization from an altruistic uh, perspective, uh, when, when Thomas Friedman said the world is flat, he said it in a, you know, or, or he looked at it in, in, a, in a bit of an altruistic way. Where in a hopeful way. Yes, in a hopeful way. But that hope, uh, that hope, uh, you know, uh, is no longer there with us. I mean to say, technology, economic growth, wealth. We hope that globalization would lead to a more equitable uh, distribution but of we wealth. Also have to but that link, doesn't happen. We also have to link these things to the whole question of violence, right? Uh, because the way market or companies or corporations accumulate power is different from the way nation states and countries. Really? In the sense that, and let's let's call it monopoly over violence. Uh, states have it. Nation states have it. I mean, companies don't have standing armies and missiles. No, you, but they, you, but you, they inflict enormous violence. They have the ability to inflict unease and. Uh, no, 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 no! Please don't, don't kill, overlook. Don't overlook the volume of violence that is created in the social and environmental impacts of enough. companies. And uh, we have a case. I mean, I don't, we don't want to go into you know, contemporary details, but there are endless cases of violence that has been physical violence, killing of people for which companies have in some cases been held accountable. Okay, but so those are those are lesser cases where an actually a whole community is physically uh, exterminated or an activist is killed and you can trace that back to a company. But the larger violence that is inflicted is through displacement of communities 
and through the displacement of the economic habitats the livelihood generation processes sure that the corporate world has unleashed in large parts of the world and in fact there's a lot of work on this to to change this but does, please does... note that the person who invented the triple bottom line concept back in 1999 john elkington last year wrote an article in harvard business review saying he was recalling the concept <laughs> because it's not working yeah. it's not working at least in the meaningful way that he hoped it would It's, it's I mean, many people are recalling thoughts because a lot of these things are wishful. Maybe Fukuyama, but, for instance. Yeah, you know, he he sort of uh, proliferated hope. But that There's, also tells you something about how things become uh, half-baked ideas sometimes become fa uh, fashions in yeah. the intellectual world. Because yeah. I think we should at some point talk I about Rajni, clash to, of civilizations. Yeah, Rajni, absolutely. Huntington, I think, must be, um, you, you know, must be laughing uh, his way, you know. That's fine. I think we have to somewhere bring in, so obviously there's some desire for peace and all of that and harmony in capital, nation states, whatever. But... in the real world there is such a thing as force there is such a thing as aggressor there's such a thing as powerful xyz um what does one do in the face of that right i mean it, it's it's a real question i mean you you can't just wish these things away you've been in the that's why the, uh, that's why force. you have something like the united i think one of the one of the prime unwritten responsibilities of the united nations is to sort of calibrate the distribution It's of power and violence power balance distribute power yeah we can debate we, you know we can debate till the cows come home whether the united nations have been successful or whether they've been effective or not but it has made an attempt so there are supranational bodies i think you mentioned a while ago subhashi which is like i think in a way totally fair that there are sovereign nations and kind of stands there there's nothing above them but bodies like league of nations or united nations or nato or whatever these are ways of cooperating collaborating distributing organizing power exchanges would that be fair and i know they are variously successful maybe to a large extent not successful um but th that's a fair statement would you yeah, agree i mean they're fair but depends on what exactly you have in mind okay oh. i mean they've not changed the nature of the international order by any means and if you look at the most fascinating i would say spatial experimentation in the last 50 years you know which is the making of the european union i mean that's again i think you know stretched to its limit it seems okay i mean right. so you see the the shadow of the nation state you know and the nation state you have to understand is the apex of the of the order i think the question okay to put it another way is whether institutions of this kind which are supranational or international in some way whether they can organize behavior and so on in certain manners to minimize or diminish conflicts whether I tell they you, are, I mean there are two ways of looking at it and whether that's worked because yeah, we have some three, history to look back three to. ways of looking at it there is one view which broadly says which is a dominant view by the way which broadly says that institutions in fact would be able to make a difference provided institutions carry forward the dominant state's interests okay i mean so if the dominant state in fact they support the institutions the institutions in fact are effective so even the united nations or even a league of nations or even a nato would have a dominant member even the most functional of institutions that you were looking at would have at, a dominant member would have dominant members the interest of the dominant members right. okay i mean so they will have to carry it forward if, i mean to if for some reason or the other the logic of the institution goes against the interest of the dominant state 
Unfortunately, Those the institutions, <laughs> in fact, they tend to sort of, you know, suffer and not right. so much the power of the dominant state. This is one view. There's, there's a second view which sort of says that, look, it depends on what is your understanding of the gain. So if you were looking at, I mean, I would entirely agree with what, what Rajni, in fact, had said about corporatization and the problems and the threats of it. Okay, I mean, my the thing is that, look, if you take it as a kind of a parameter that you would be living with the market as the fundamental institution of organizing e economic space. Because Life they, itself. Yeah, yeah Life. because there doesn't seem to be any other alternative to it, okay? I mean, the alternative <laughs> that was tried, in fact, you know, it, it was very, a disaster, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay? And even if you look at China, I mean, how would one characterize the Chinese economy? I mean, it's it's right. capitalism with some other name. State capitalism. Okay, state capitalism. Yeah. So the argument, therefore, is this, that look, any idea of capitalism, it is entirely based on what is known as the logic of Pareto optimality, where broadly you say that any exchange is fair if the sum is positive to both the parties. Yeah. So even if it's a zero hundred, yeah. I'm getting something. So if we would not exchange, then possibly the zero becomes a negative. Yeah. So by the logic, therefore, those institutionalists, in fact, who say that institutions can make a lot of difference, they would say that institutions make differences because states, in fact, they are also motivated by notions of absolute gain. So you are not comparing what exactly I'm getting and, and what you are getting, but you are simply looking notionally at the totality, let's say, of the benefits. Sure. In sharp contrast, in fact, are the realists who broadly make the argument that no, politics is not about absolute gains. Then we would be living in paradise. Mm -hmm. It's about relative gains. Okay. I mean, so I'm all the time comparing. Okay. So if China and India, let's say, so we trade huge market on both sides. But if China keeps on dumping on us, then we are fretting our economic opportunities out. Okay. I mean, so time, in fact, is going to come when the gains that the Chinese, in fact, are making, they would continuously, you know, transform that into military assets, okay? I mean, so that difference, in fact, ultimately is going yeah, to come. That's, that's Exponential growth. That's yeah, you know, so therefore... Can, and one power can be translated into another. Absolutely, right. that's one. And the third point right. is, it, what is it the way in which you understand the logic of the institution? And I mean, is it a logic of utility? Okay, in other words, you broadly make the argument that institutions function when interests are served, okay? Which can either be through carrot or by stake. Or you say that institutions functions when there are norms of appropriateness that undergird them. Okay, I mean, so like so I, I'm a formal. Do you bring like, in morality there? Yeah, it's, look, I, I give you a, an example from my own life. You know, because I earn a living by teaching. So when I go to a class and I see that my students, in fact, they're listening to the lectures. Why is it that they're listening to my lecture? I mean, they could have obviously, you know, done something which would not make that lecture possible in the first place. Mm. You get the point. So there is this underlying norm. That norm, in fact, is about the legitimacy of the role performance on both sides. Mm. The teacher, in fact, is supposed to take the class. And on the other side, they also have a role to perform. Okay? I mean, so in many facets of life, recognize values of institutions, not necessarily because institutions, in fact, uh, make differences that can be transformed in terms of gains or, or losses or burdens and, and, and I would say, you know, uh, benefits, but more in terms of... But because they're norms and we're just performing them. Yeah. And, and, and somehow those institutions yeah, or whatever more in they... Terms, more in terms of the convergence of the norms, okay? I mean, so when we share the norms, the institutions, in fact, are good. You have something you to know, say? You know, I just, I, I just uh, wanted to get back to a point that Rajni made some time back, 
and and she talked about these normative studies that talk that 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 highlight uh, that the number of uh, people who lose their life to to violence either interstate violence or intrastate violence is significantly lower than the number of uh, lives lost to other calamities environmental issues why is it then uh, that human beings tend to overplay the impact of lives lost in war and conflict and structured violence mm -hmm. as against loss of life in what is considered to be normal But i mean to say an earthquake or a famine or 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 or, or, or a displacement of population because of uh, the lack of means of livelihood no oh, those two are very different that in fact uh, let's look no at there is no obvious aggressor in many of these cases no, no one is the difference between what is deemed to be quote unquote an act of god an earthquake a cyclone sure sure uh, a tsunami uh, and something that has been de deliberately fostered by a known or unknown group of people and has afflicted whoever you deem to be part of yourself or in and therefore war victims for example the european uh, refugees or rather the syrian uh, syrian refugees in europe are a matter of great division within those societies they are dividing people across the world because it's a very political issue how do you look at them but they are a result of but, they are a result of structured violence no no, no i know that's... and that violence is driven by many of the factors that he has described yeah. right yeah. Yeah. whereas a tsunami in fact the actual tsunami that destroyed such large areas from indonesia right up till the african coast it evoked global outpouring of aid of you know small to big donations etc so i think there is a point there about how what evokes our loyalties or or stresses them in some way versus what appeals to our pure humanity yeah i just just one small point there which doesn't contradict what obviously she has said okay and but it takes into cognizance a very important question i think which arjun in fact has asked here i think part of it has to do with what is called the logic of securitization hmm. mm. which broadly sort of makes it look how is it that you take something to be uh, something to be uh, let's say existential to your being why is it that in some societies demographic becomes an existential issue okay it doesn't happen in other societies let's say okay i mean sort of so if you look at scandinavian countries well scandinavian countries are idyllic peaceful but they're paranoid in terms of who are getting in there okay i mean so you've one of the most strict you know possible kind of filtration that you have but on the other hand there are many countries in fact which are fairly happy with the kind of people who are coming in look every society in fact would use gates and they would manage gates let's say right why is it for example that you know i mean again this is a question which is that if you look at disease disease kills the maximum let's say and if you if i share the global statistics diarrhea and influenza had taken more lives than every form of conflict taken together sure no fair enough point. but would it be fair but you're waging a war against uh, no, them no, as you well are, you are you are you are but is the language of this 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 the expression that you use should we use the language waging a war is this point clear you know i mean fair enough okay i mean so in in a sense that 
if you are securitizing these, you know, what you call domains also, because you possibly tend to think that, you know, military gets the highest priority. So invoke the language of security. So it gets the resources and the attention that it deserves. Okay, Non-traditional threats. Yes, but along with it, right. along with it comes the cost, which is, which is what? Which is then, then, then you have to accept the fact that the package legitimation which happens in the case of the military, where we do not say that this is exceptional. I think the question that I want to ask all of you is that are there instances, situations, contexts, and maybe starting with you, Rajni, where violence may be necessary? And, you know, you obviously thought of Gandhi in some shape and form. I think it, I find it very interesting that he actually lived through two world wars. Um, and maybe there are ways in which some of his ideas and thoughts were recorded. Now, I think his stance on the question posed more generically is known. But when you're faced with reality, um, it's something else. And the fact is, now, there may have been long stretches of peace and so on, but there's a way in which men make war. We attack each other, we kill each other in small and big ways. What does one do when one is faced with that? And I, I don't know whether there are thoughts and ideas there that might be worth thinking about. No, it is. It's the central question. Mm. And you can look at it at an individual or a you know immediate level that there are situations in life where you may, in order to defend yourself... But the danger is immediate. No, one second. Yeah. Uh, both for the individual and for some larger collective, self-defense is the most obvious case. That's the most black and white situation in which the inevitability of violence comes to the fore. Is that the logic for military? No, one sec, one sec. Yeah. But that, this is only step one. The important <laughs> step is the next one, hmm. which is that... So I'm... I'm accepting that it is not possible to live in absolute nonviolence. Okay. Uh, but the difference between, there is a difference between mindful and very restrained use of violence versus the glorification and celebratory all use of violence. And I think these distinctions are not so difficult to main, make, at least they may be difficult to act on. Yeah, it's very difficult to act on because the because the very act of violence uh, sort of transcends uh, when is elements aggression, of yeah. when is aggression necessary. Yeah, you know, if you look at it, why is the bottommost rung of uh, uh, how we employ instruments of force in statecraft as deterrence? Deterrence is building capability in order to prevent violence. So there's something preventive about so, it. So, it's strategic. Yes. So so inherently, I would say that I don't think that human beings have a have an immediate propensity to violence. The first human reaction is how do I prevent violence? But the problem is that, uh, and, and that's a corollary of what I mentioned earlier, that that window for negotiation, the window for diplomacy, the window for tolerance is shrinking. And that is why the propensity between deterrence and compellence today is actually shrinking increasingly. So you have deterrence. But all of these are still deterrence. When is coercion necessary? When is aggression necessary? Uh, coercion is a, you know, uh, uh, coercion because is but it, another it escalatory like step it, of deterrence. It but looks I'm, like there's I'm looking no... at punishment. I'm looking at punishment as a, uh, as a manifestation of violence. And punishment, yes. Punishment can be calibrated. I feel at times punishment may be necessary. And I'm talking as a realist. It somehow feels that all nations, countries, entities, yeah, groups I, feel that violence is an act of defense when in 
I don't know. What do you have to say? No, to I, I, I think the two answers here, broadly, that violence, in fact, is justified only as a tool of deterrence, let's say, or in self-defense kind of a thing, let's say. But there are more late motives to violence, I tell you. You know, one is that the moment you shift to the language of justice, and when you have injustice perpetuated, let's say, by the powerful, the issue of violence becomes absolutely, I would say, central. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how would you fight an unjust system? Now, you can say that you can fight it non-violently. You get the point. But non-violence and violence, if you make that distinction, a lot depends on your understanding of what violence is. I mean, if for your understanding of violence is physical injury, let's say, that you're killing something or you're killing a form of life, then that's one reading of violence, let's say. Maybe the conventional reading of violence. But the fact is that, look, if you are looking at human history, the epochal shifts and jumps in human history that we have made, nothing has actually come about short of some violence. Yeah. Yeah. You get the point. I mean, so if somebody is inflicting... Now, this could be displacements, this could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah. It could be anything. You know, I mean, people simply holding on to their unjustified benefits in life. Okay, they yeah. would not give in without a... Yeah, the Industrial Revolution led to a lot which of violence. Which is the Absolutely. question, which is the question that is... And the other point is uh, violence inevitable. Now there is. A, yeah. it sounds like a very disturbing no, no. Inevitability, question. The inevitability question we may come up. The other point that I just wanted because I would forget otherwise <laughs> is the fact that violence is also a form of catharsis. Okay, I mean, mm. you know, if there's you something at, psychological. Yeah, about. you know, look at Franz Fanon's work, for example. Right. You know, you can. I'm not saying that you need to accept what Fanon, in fact, is saying. But Fanon draws attention to the fact that, look, you know, look at the post-colonial societies that we are inhabiting, let's say. One of the things which we did not discuss for the positive time is the fact that, look, the Westphalian straitjacket of the nation state in many ways is not the post-colonial understanding of the state. I mean, you know, of course, for, for, I think for, for, for us, to it. Yeah, yes. for us, it's a received structure. Yeah, it's a received structure. To make Absolutely. We have had to make peace with it at great cost. And then fit our history or whatever we, have to we call fit. it into Absolutely. That. So yes. it's a case of fitting. And fitting has been violent in many cases. And right. it continues, continues to, to be. be violent. It continues to be so violent. So what's the future? Why don't we think about that towards the end? Where are we headed? Yes, Rajni. No, I think I just want to build on both their points that the thing we've not mentioned is that more than ever before today, there is an economic interest in violence. Yeah. That we cannot underestimate the power exerted by a large and pretty much unrestrained, unregulated armaments industry, which goes from the smallest pistol to the largest, you know, long distance guns. And that that is very much also part of what drives um, so you fear situations in which often war is created military industrial complex that's we call right. it yeah. that's right uh, war is sometimes created in order for that sales so to continue so you fear that that's become an animal unto itself it is it's... of course and it has been noted to be so from before the second world war and no shortage of very large figures on the global stage have riled against it, have raised various kinds of mobilizations against it, but to no avail. So what's the future, Rajni? 200 years, 300 years, where's this headed? Well, see, the because other thing, somehow, despite yeah. some no, very compelling arguments... No, I think we are going arguments. to be overtaken. Actually, this whole discussion is about to be overtaken in our lifetime by climate change. And in fact, the whole discussion on geopolitics is going to look very out of uh, sync with reality because what is really going to unfold now 
are uh, the, the consequences of collapsing ecosystems. And so really, if, if you ask me in one sense, the real problems of violence are now going to be competitions over survival resources, mm -hmm. primarily water. But everything else also that you need. See, in this technological world, we tend to forget that actually at the end of the day, you need eatable grain and water. But in, in, in situations and so like my, these... my submission, uh, my pitch is that unless we start to look at reality in terms of bioregions. Sure. And recognize. So in that sense, actually what needs to replace the nation state is bioregions, but that will not solve the ethical problem that if your bioregion and my bioregion are in conflict. that's very easy to say, almost impossible to yeah. do. That will not solve the ethical problem of how to live in a time of acute scarcities. You know, uh, the, I, I won't, uh, you know, I'll be a little more realistic in my assessment of violence. Please. While I would fully agree that the, the, the principal driver for violence in the years ahead would be climate change, would be environmental. But the net result will be that people will still be grappling with how do we manage violence. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? By that I mean to say that can we create structures within existing structures that can calibrate that violence so that the world can sort of share the dwindling resources and somehow survive. So I'll be quite sort of uh, to the point of being cynical to say that we still will have to deal with lots of violence and how do we survive? Uh, and in you this. mean violence in the military sense? Yes, even in the also. military sense. In the military sense, because what is going to happen is you, these ecological you... these ecological drivers are going to get people in closer proximity to one another, and the closer you get, uh, the more diffuse geographical frontiers get, the more they will be. Uh, jousting for uh, space. So is that what predators look for? Yeah. Like when there's aggression, they're yeah, looking yeah, for... Yeah, I think uh, so. Just more so I don't think we're going to see, I don't think we're going to see a reduction in violence over the next four, five, six, seven, eight de decades. We just may need to think ahead to see what is the kind of violence that will replace one form of violence. We'll end with you, Shibashish. Where are we headed? No, there is no easy answer. You know, I, I think one can guess that. Um, yeah. What's the difficult answer? No, I, I didn't There's mean no that I have a difficult answer. What I'm saying is that <laughs> you have no to answer. look at it. You have to look at it at multiple levels. Okay? Sure. One is that, as Arjun rightly says, that look at, at some level, violence is going to be there. So it's the challenge is really about how you effectively manage violence. Okay, so that's one way of looking at it. You know, which is broadly not a transformatory kind of an answer in the sense that, but it but is. But it is in sync. You know, with the I think with the findings of most of the academics now that there had never been a pristine moment of human history where we had not lived in violence okay i mean right. so violence it in fact is a part of life you know yeah. if you read that malinowski article okay 1961 very famous article okay i mean you know where it's an anthropological i know anthropologist take to violence <laughs> malinowski writes that line that what is this anthropologist doing i mean it's ir scholars he's not to be a clown in the show Hmm. Okay, I mean, so if anthropology is about how human beings, in fact, have lived and how human beings, in fact, they relate to each other, so we need to locate violence absolutely on the ground. Okay, right. and so, and you will find that there are issues which, in fact, you know, makes us in some way or the other aggressive and violent. At the second level, we need to have better answers to the problems of war. Okay, I mean, you know, there are three possible ways of doing it. One is that if you say that war results because you have aggressive leaders, change them, have more peaceful leaders, for example, who would work for peace with greater sincerity, 
The second is, as can't believe, that war is essentially a, the function of domestic pathology. Right. So totalitarian systems, in fact, would go for war because they don't have built-in accountability. Right. So you democratize the system in the substantive, genuine sense of the term, which means it's more a deliberative model, let's say, rather than a functional model. And if that happens, then the drivers, in fact, are gradually sort of receding. It's not that you have eliminated, you know, I think, violence, but then you've sort of created a situation where a lot of talk is going to happen before a fire, in fact, is going to be exchanged. The final answer is a difficult one, you know, which Rousseau, in fact, gave. Rousseau says that, look, the problem of war is actually the result of a very complex interactional puzzle. Okay, and he gave that, uh, wrote that, you know, parable of the hunters. Okay, so this hungry hunters, in fact, they have gathered. They have not eaten for a long time. And they f see a stag and they take up their positions. Okay, I mean, so they block every entry. And they realize that if they're cooperating, they will be able to fill the stag. And then suddenly a rabbit emerges. <laughs> mm. right. And Disruptor. one hunter, he takes the rabbit and goes away. Right. Okay, and that is where politics comes in. Okay, I mean, so that sentence which you spoke, I wrote it down. You know, are all orders political orders? Right. Every order is a political order. And it will remain so. It will remain so. Because politics is not what the state does. Because they're groups, they're individuals, they're interactions. Absolutely. Two yeah. people will make a politics. Politics, yes. yes. Mm. So therefore, you can't really imagine a situation <laughs> where there will not be politics. Right. And you have to, therefore, I think, achieve modes of distributing resources in a manner in which you adjust your lifestyle consciously and therefore interrogate that part of modernity which says that science and technology, in fact, they are the panacea to all the problems that we have. The world of plenty, the world of everything. Mm. So, yeah. And, and, and I mean, if you look at, in a sense, you look at Freud, for example, I mean, and which Lacan develops later, but Freud does his, in my opinion, better than you know, than Laka and others, for example, who broadly says that, look, the problem is that, you know, we have lost the balance in us between the nature on one hand and rationality on the other. <laughs> okay, so relieve the balance. Let's passion come back in life. And if passion comes back in life, life would be violent, but that violence, in fact, is not going to be the kind of violence that you witness it now. It won't be as whole scale. It would, whole it, would not be, it, it would not be whole scale, and it would not be the kind where, you know, violence, in fact, is unrelated. Okay, I mean, It's not a civilizational issue. It's not a civilizational issue. Okay, I mean, so... Interesting. So that, that thing has to happen. Whether it happens or not, one doesn't we'll really maybe you need more states. Maybe you need more statesmen across the world to calibrate violence. Yeah, you need that. You need statesmen across the world to calibrate violence. And also, I think the final thing that, that I would need to sort of possibly, uh, in a way, just drop this this thing, which is that many of these issues had been with us. Okay, hunger had been with us. And a lot of violence is over hunger. A lot of violence, in fact, is over how scarce resources, in fact, you know, they, they should be distributed in life. A lot of violence is about the drivers of plunder. Okay. So all these things, in fact, are not new. The forms are new. Right. You get the point. So we need to, therefore, devise ways so that we can deal with these threats better. Yeah. Okay. But I would say that, look, it's not a question of being utopian or being a realist. Thing, in fact, is that if you want to create something new, then you have to be bold in life. And being bold sometimes entails taking risks. Maybe more yeah. statesmen, yes. maybe and more Gandhis. More, 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 more both. 
yeah. more Gandhi is more statesman and sometimes more Fanon also. More Fanon, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. that you know you are able to sometimes you know stand balance apart. these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't have to throw passion it. out of the room. It, it it's needed. Yeah, but sometimes you realize the fact that your old systems are not functioning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But such is the dynamic of human history. I tell you, mm. this is institutional tongue. That we are just simply comfortable living in the system. <laughs> okay, the nation no, state in fact what willing, I'm, willing what I'm hearing you say is actually the opposite. The earlier part, yeah. what you said was very important because I heard you to mean that never stop believing that it can be different. Absolutely. But but a lot of us, most of us, are also willing prisoners we, yeah. of our own systems. Yes. yes, I think that's the point. Know, the will, and, and being prisoners but, of the system means what? You know, which means that you know, even when we understand that without coordination there is no resolution to the problem, right? We would read difference into it. You okay. wait for a bigger crisis, and maybe yes. we have one around the corner. Yeah. So that's good yeah. enough. We can discuss that possibly at some other show. Thank <laughs> Thanks to all of you for making it. That's Thank a good you. note to end on, and Thank we look you. forward Enjoyed to having you soon again. Thank, Thank you, you very coming. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you.